And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast was recorded October 23rd, 2020. John Berryhill is the landscape curator at Smith College, and he has been with us before on our podcast, and we invited him back because he was he had so much to talk about, and we were anxious to hear more about what he had to say. So welcome, John. We're really happy to have you back on our podcast. This is exciting. Thanks a lot, Eva. I appreciate it, and hello, Hal. Hey, John. Yeah, thanks so much for coming back. Uh, as you said, Eva, the staff of the Botanic Garden has to wear a lot of hats because we're trying to, to accomplish a really broad mission. And um, even within the arboriculture piece of that pie, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, distinct slices of it. Well, I, th- I think one of the things that intrigued us was that you were talking about um, how, how do you really uh, manage your trees the last time at Smith College? And there was so much to talk about that um, that's number one, why one of the reasons why we wanted you back. But also we wanted to hear more about your regimes, uh, your tree regimes and uh, maybe inspections and how do you look for trees that might be a risk to, uh, to the community that you have there at the uh, college. I wanted to hear a little bit more about that. And I know Hal and I, we talk about this all the time about um, when we're off the air, we have these back and forth conversations about tree risk and tree assessment and, and you know, how that happens. And as arborists, you know, we're, we're always looking at the tree and how uh, the health of it and also if it could, if it could fail. So it's a tricky, tricky subject to get into, and there, there's conversations that can happen between arborists too. And a lot of times, I'm sure you've struggled. Um, I don't, I don't frequently uh, talk with homeowners as much about that. But if if you own a home, or if you just love trees, if there's some tree that's special in your hometown or part of your life, part of your history that that you just want to see have a long life, these questions matter to you. And it, the arboriculture communities really struggled for a long time with how to distill what we see and we know intuitively or, or, or the, um, from the experience we've had, our professional experience, and how to distill that into actionable advice for uh, homeowners because they're really asking an unanswerable question. They're asking, is my tree safe? I'll, I'll back up a bit how I, I got into this thinking. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the International Society of Arboriculture's uh, TRAC. That's an acronym, Tree Risk Assessment Qualification. Uh, right. That program and that system for communicating tree risk. I think it's a great tool for arborists, and I think it's a great communication tool. And a couple of things it's trying to do is, is to ensure that the arboriculture community is at least used using the same vocabulary and the same system, that kind of consistency really helps us sort of advance the subject and our understanding of how to 
to work with tree risk and how to communicate it to people outside of the arboriculture community. It was an improve. It's it's the I think maybe the third or fourth generation that they've tried to do, and in some ways you're trying to kind of quantify what really is a qualitative assessment. You really can't can't quantify it. But when when I took my first class, this was maybe six years ago when I got first got the qualification. I remember the instructor Mark Mark Duntiman, who is a who's a fantastic educator and a sort of unique talent in that he that that Venn diagram between the legal world, that circle and the arboriculture world. There aren't a lot of people that stand in that that overlap. And he does that uh, exceptionally well. And he's been able to provide a, a really valuable service to the arboriculture community about a lot of people. They know their trees and then there's their lawyers that know the law and they don't know trees. And so when a tragedy happens, they come back to that question. Was that tree safe when a tree fails? And when we say that, we just mean it, oh, the whole tree or part of a tree came down. And let's say there's loss of life. Mrs. Uh, Jones uh, was killed and struck by a large limb. The lawyer will ask the question, should that, should that limb have been removed? And they're really asking two questions. There's two questions in that. One of them is, would we like to go back in time and remove that limb before it killed Mrs. Jones? Of course we would have. Was there danger there? Yes, there was. But the other question is, was the person responsible for the care of that tree unreasonably negligent? And that's a completely different question. And it's the one that's very hard to answer, especially in hindsight. And for that reason, he wants to remember the quote from Mark that got me on this track. He said, if you do not define your tree risk management program, it will be defined for you in court. Oh, that's great. It's like, boom, that's been just tattooed to the front of my brain ever since. And it, it kind of got me on this track. Um, and it got me away from, uh, you know, every, every tree will fail eventually. Every part of a tree will fail eventually. So we're not asking, we, don't, we got, need to walk away from words like, is this tree safe? Is it a hazard? That's another word that should never be mentioned in tree risk assessment. Um, is there danger? What we're trying, the question we're really asking is, is there acceptable risk or is there unacceptable risk? And that's a question that we can act on. That's something that we can, as arborists, either individuals or as a community, we can, we can develop systems to steal a little language from risk management, which is sort of its own generic uh, field of study now um, and has advanced in recent years. And we can steal terms like a reasonable standard of care from there. And although we can argue about exactly what that means, we can't argue about the fact that that is the target. The target is not, okay, that tree is now safe. The target is that we have achieved a reasonable standard of care. And when we think about allocating our resources towards that goal, we can use terms, again, stealing from risk management, like getting risk as low as is reasonably practical. It's got a little bit more information in it than reasonable standard of care. And that starts to guide us towards decision making where we say when the inputs that address risk are disproportionately costly to the gain. I, if Smith College hired 1,200 arborists and everybody gets their own tree and their own tracked lift vehicle and they're up in it for eight hours a day, carefully, you know, <laughs> dusting off each leaf and you know you know give them each a sonic tomography machine and give them an air spade that they can do this and that, that too um yeah we could almost bring the the risk of 
loss of, of, of uh, injury, death, or property loss, we could bring it almost to zero. Notice I said almost. But the expense, we'd be talking probably billions of dollars a year, and we'd be bringing it from low to like acceptably low to even lower. That's ridiculous. Any tree risk management plan like ours, we started ours about a year and a half ago. And my first thought when building it was, I'm just going to go and see what else is out there, which comparable plans are out there. And I'm going to use that as a scaffolding. And I'm going to just color in the parts, uh, Smith College colors uh, where I need to. And it wasn't out there. I was shocked. Our risk management strategy to that point had two major flaws to it. It was, and that was, I was surprised to learn that that's probably what most of our peers in the country do. I've yet to find what I would consider an adequate tree risk management plan at a college or university. It mm -hmm. was reactive and it was undocumented. Two huge flaws. So when we get back yeah. to that lawyer asking the question. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was there a reasonable standard of care. You were reactive. So we wait for unacceptable risk to, to sort of present itself as a matter as a, as a matter of, of normal operations. And when we see it, we mitigate it and we don't document that we did it. So any program has to be targeted towards a reasonable standard of care, allocate resources to get risk as low as is reasonably a practical practicable and it has to be documented and it has to be proactive. It means we're looking where we have some structured, defined system for looking for the flaw that might make that branch break and kill Mrs. Smith. John, thanks for that great overview. And first of all, just because our listeners might not be familiar with TRAC, uh, the tree risk uh, qualification, I, uh, I have it as well. Actually, this was the year I was supposed to retake it because the International Society of Arboriculture has you redo the program every five years. Just out of curiosity, have you done that second cycle? Of, I, just, uh, I just did this winter in January, yeah. Okay, was that online or? Um, it was not, but it's a condensed, I believe it's a two and a half, two and a half day program to get your initial uh, certification, and that includes the test. There's a written and a practical portion to the, the test, the practical just being going to a tree and, and uh, using the system to, to fill out a, a, the form. Uh, right. The recertification is a half day, maybe a one day, I'm sorry, a, a better part of a day um, that is sort of a half day review. And then uh, at some point after lunch was, oh, so was the practice. That was pre-pandemic uh, then. You were Oh, yes, it was. I just got it in about, about about two months under the wire. I didn't think about that, but I'm sure it's, it looks different now uh, for sure. Uh, that's trickier so, to do because not everybody's going to the same tree to, to use the form. Yeah. So I maintain that uh, our field of arboriculture is uh, about to experience changes at all different levels. It may not know it yet as an industry but not only with pest and disease management, but with our approach to pruning all this uh, against the backdrop of the climate crisis. And um, I did a webinar in August out of the Pacific Northwest. All they were talking about was fire and uh, how they're managing properties to create a gap uh, between a residence or a structure and uh, the trees that pose a, a flammable risk. And then when you go to the southeastern states, 
and what they're doing with trees in light of flooding and hurricanes. Now you and Eva and myself, we're all up here in the Northeast. Sometimes we think we're getting a free pass weather-wise in terms of weather extremes, but I was on some website in the last week and uh, it was a good one. I mean, it was something to do with, uh, with uh, weather and, and uh, climatological assessment. And they did say, uh, Southeastern PA expect to experience more, if not hurricane, than uh, the lesser parts of a hurricane, you know, the, the weakening systems. So from the arborist perspective, in fact, just yesterday, standing with my crew and now, you know, we're using the laser pointer and it's great, it's strategic and it's fun to identify specific limbs that are gonna come off because we have tulip poplars here that, you know, will give you 130 feet of height and uh, comparable spread sometimes. And I'm saying, hey guys, how are we gonna prune this tree? You know, it happens to be 15 feet uh, from the house, uh, you know, of a terrific client, um, a house with some age, you know, probably close to 100 years, a handsome building. What can we offer this client in terms of, uh, of a pruning program so that when that weather system comes in, and actually, ironically, we were doing storm damage cleanup from the June 3rd derecho that blasted through. Philadelphia and Montgomery County here in Pennsylvania. What's our pruning program uh, so that that client can have peace of mind as the winds are howling and the rains are pelletizing, that's not the right word, uh, the roof of their house. So overextended limbs, all this to say is there's that paradigm shift of the days of, oh, make a few thinning cuts, a la Ed Gilman, dose of thinning, prune out dead limbs, one inch, two inch diameter, doesn't seem sufficient. It's, it's a tough call. And, and one thing that's actually an, an opportunity that we've been able to exploit that I hope more arboriculture companies and more municipalities and, and colleges and universities can take advantage of is the, the track lift vehicles, because there's not a person, a sane human being on the planet that wants to be on the outer canopy of a 130 foot tulip poplar um, if folks aren't familiar with how weak tulip wood is, yeah. uh, it's bad enough if that was an oak tree. But um, yeah, how, do you, how can you make um, meaningful mitigation, uh, especially in the face of such extreme events? We've been able to uh, find rental opportunities where we've gotten an 83-foot uh, track lift vehicle that allows us to work the outer canopy, our point of emphasis in the winter, we, we rent it for a month. I would love to have it for the year. Uh, it's not only a safer way to do arboriculture work, um, an easier way to get up in a, a tree canopy, but it allows you to get to, to parts of the tree that just aren't accessible through traditional rope climbing methods. And you can do those kinds of reduction cuts. Uh, we, we rent that after the, you know, that tree risk management plan I was sort of describing the philosophy behind that's turned into a an actionable plan and part of that's an annual tree risk survey um you know that the, the output of the the track program is that a tree is assigned for a given time frame and that's a key piece that was was new to this because time frame is critical to risk assessment everything's extreme risk if you don't put a, a lid on the time frame so we want every tree over 20 feet on campus to be assessed 
by a track certified arborist and uh, classified as low risk for a one year time frame. If it is not, we will take appropriate mitigation action to bring into that uh, risk level for, uh, for that time frame. So the, the output that we want to get to is, is, is every tree is assigned a low risk. Uh, and then we uh, rent, when, when that survey is completed and documented, that, that critical bit, we uh, bring in a track lift vehicle that we can get to the top of almost all of our trees. You know, an 83 feet gives you, with a, with a pole saw, with, you know, 15 plus feet of pole saw, you get you to the, the most of our, our treetops. And... Um, so we're, we're given options that are really aimed at what you're talking about, Hal. It's, it's more often ice storms up here, although we did have that uh, Hurricane Isaisis um, came through and gave us 75 mile an hour gusts. And that is a weather event that's outside of what we can really predict what trees are going to do right. in. It's just a, it, it's, things get risky at that point if we, uh, we, we did uh, have a bit of tree damage, but two things that helped were, were some nice feedback for our tree risk management plan were that the trees that we had taken mitigation action on, extensive mitigation action on, which were in our minds the highest risk trees, were relatively unaffected by the storm. We did have one uh, significant tree failure. Unfortunately, it was part of an elise, so it wasn't just the loss. It was the, the picture that it was part of uh, took a hit. We had a possibly 100-ish year old uh, uh, European linden tree come down, and the tree failed about 15 feet up. There was a two-inch cavity, a two-inch cavity that you could see one of those little squirrel hotel yep. holes. And... So it was an opportunity to ask ourselves, did the system fail? And the conclusion was that, that it didn't. That's that sort of tree that killed Mr., uh, Mrs. Smith problem hypothetical that I was talking about. The question is not, uh, should we have taken that tree down, which with the benefit of hindsight, we should have. The question is, is it reasonable for us to look at every two inch caliper entry point of decay on a tree on a campus rather with scores of canopy trees you know not just cavities but any potential flaw that could in a 75 mile, mile an hour plus wind load fail mm -hmm. and remove all of them the answer is absolutely not we don't have trees if that happens right did the was the um two inch cavity the portal to extensive interior rot? it was yeah and it would have been detected if we'd gone and done the resistograph on that we could have determined that 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 would have been uh probably in an uncomfortable zone and, and you if you're managing a large property with trees you have to be able to sleep at night with the fact that there are weaknesses in trees that you just don't have the resources to get to I remember that our township, when we were doing assessments of trees in, in our parks, um, if we knew a tree had a problem, we would put an X on it. And that would technically release us at least from some liability. If people saw that, that there was an X there, we would kind of cordon off the area. That would actually help us, even if we didn't have the money to take it down, that X was telling people that it was hazardous. 
And that can work if you have limited funding, especially in a municipality. There was one instance that I was contacted for someone who got killed in Fairmount Park in the Wissahickon. And uh, she had been running on a day that the winds were 40 miles an hour. And we had just had a rainstorm and, well, a tree limb fell and killed her, as you were saying, Mrs. Smith, right? And they asked me, they said, you know, was, was the park, were their friends of the park negligent? And I said, no. I said, you know, we're coming off a very heavy summer of rain and trees will grow as much as they can during a rainy season, but they didn't have enough time to strengthen up their resistant wood. And so the tree failed or the limb failed. And, you know, they were trying to pin the case and find liability on, on the friends of the park, but, you know, it was just an act of God. And furthermore, she shouldn't have been running in the park with trees overhead on a 40 mile an hour day. And, you know, you think about that and there are things that I know at Longwood where I work, they will cordon off areas in the woodlands on a windy day. So nobody walks underneath there because they know that even though their trees are kept healthy, uh, there's always the potential for something to fall. And how much is too much care? Yeah. (laughs) What is it? What's what's reasonably practicable? What's reasonably achievable? At at some point it, it does... Um, what's worth noting this because these these happen in such spectacular fashion, and because trees fail so uh, regularly, we see so many of them. We see if you live in a rural area, your your eyes are are set on probably millions of trees a month. Although there's a lot of repeats in there, but uh, if you look at a mountainside and whatnot, we see a lot of trees. You end up seeing every everybody sees tree failures every year. You know. A, a loss like that is so tragic. It's easy to to get a disproportionate sense of the risk, the actual risk that trees pose. Something Mark said in one of Mark Dunsman said in one of his lectures was, uh, "I wish I could have it written down somewhere." There was a paper that 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 quantified the average number of deaths uh, per year due to trees, and it was thirteen. This isn't counting acts of professional related accidents. It's higher if you do, but but just from tree failure, it's 13. That's really low. It's it's 13 too high, obviously, but it's also a lot lower than we probably think. It's it was much lower than I thought it was. If they if he had told me 1300, I wouldn't have bad an eyelash. I would have been like, oh yeah, trees. I, I've seen trees fail. I know that. So it what it tells you, and and the the track program does such a good job of bringing the right pieces into the the decision making you're you're looking at the potential for the tree to fail if it fails the likelihood that there will be a consequence that it will strike a person a, a property of value you're judging whether that consequence or the the impact or the the severity of that consequence did somebody's uh old barbecue grill that doesn't work anymore that you were hoping to sell for 10 bucks on craigslist did that get smashed? Well, technically the tree failed. Technically there was a consequence, but you know what? You're probably okay with that. Or did Mrs. Jones get killed? You're not okay with that. And then the time frame. What's the likelihood 
that an unacceptable event will happen within a given time frame is what we're trying to ask. And when you phrase that the question that way, then it's suddenly it's it, the, the shock, you know, of, of, oh, my gosh, trees are falling everywhere. Why didn't you should have known that this tree might have failed and you had to act on it. That's not to say that there isn't negligence that occurs within within tree care. But if you're listening to this and you are a property manager of any sort, from a homeowner to somebody in my position or a professional arborist, and you're thinking about how to manage a population of trees, I, I, I'm on a mission to, to, to get people to ask themselves, to just write down, it doesn't have to be, ours, ours is gonna end up being 15 pages long or so, uh, but it can be as simple as saying, what the goals are. The goals should be, they should use the term, we're trying to achieve a reasonable standard of care. That's your goal, not safe trees, a reasonable standard of care, and to get the risk as low as is reasonably achievable. And to ask yourself, what are the resources we have to do that? It would have been a very different plan if I'd had the same information, but the resources that our botanic garden had in 2004 when I first got my Arbor certification, and, and it was just me. Now we have uh, three uh, arborists with with the track certification on campus, and we have access to the aerial lift, and we can we can do a much better job. And then write down what you're doing, and those those things will go a really really long way to cover you legally. If something hey. happens, there's going to be a lawsuit, but I would much rather go into a lawsuit saying that I'm using the the program that is. Uh, endorsed by the International Society of Arboriculture to, to measure our trees and, and to deploy our resources to maximum efficacy towards that goal. You know, when, when you're talking about that, it reminds me of um, a man who I knew who had hung out his camp, camping tents out in the backyard. They had gone away on a Boy Scout camping trip and they had them hanging out in the yard and a, they, there was a big storm and it got really, really windy. And the first thing he decided to do was go out and pick up the tents off the line. And of course, they had these humongous tulip trees in the backyard and the neighbors and everyone around. It was a very, very wooded neighborhood. And one of the neighbor's trees failed and crushed him. And he wound up in the hospital. He languished for about a week or two before he died. And, you know, the neighbors were feeling guilty that he got killed. And that neighbor uh, wound up cutting every tree down on the property because they didn't want that to happen again. And I was like, well, you know, what's the odds of that happening? But also think about not going out in the windstorm. <laughs> Yeah. You know, um, there's a case in point. Again, we go back to the windy day, thinking about that as a homeowner and the people who may be listening who are homeowners, to think about trees on a windy day and be cautious, be more cautious. We all have to be more cautious, too. Of the uh, plant blindness, though, don't you think, as far as uh, people putting on their earbuds, putting the podcast on, they don't notice the darkening sky. Off they go for a run uh, in the woodsy path that just so happens to be lined with tulip poplars. And you've been on your computer all day, and it's pretty easy to kind of be oblivious. In fact, as I recount that, I think I'm guilty of that myself. It's like, I need exercise. Oh, the wind's picking up. 
I'll be okay. You know, a little bit of denial. I agree. I, I make this, this I, I love hiking and I love trail running and I've been out on plenty of days where, you know, I'm, <laughs> there's a 45 mile an hour wind blowing and, I, and I'm saying to myself, Oh, that feels fantastic. Rather than looking or considering the fact that I'm climbing over a couple of down trees across the trail from the last 40 mile an hour storm. Oh yeah. And uh, if anybody should be sort of, anybody's mind should be drawn to the, the risk I'm exposed to. Uh, it should be a, a, a absolutely. Plan. Yeah. I, uh, my son and I were hiking in Lycoming County, North of Williamsport last weekend, uh, at different times, the wind was up, uh, at least on two occasions, we would hear trees crashing off in the distance. We made camp. My son says, I think I'm going to sleep right next to the fire tonight. And, you know, the sun had gone down, so I couldn't really look up and assess. Meanwhile, I made my, set my tent up under a nice hemlock that I knew was not going to do anything just because it was a conifer and, you know, hidden away in the woods a little bit more and buffeted by surrounding smaller trees. But I have to say, as a dad, I was thinking, man, I wish I'd looked at that tree a little bit better where, uh, <laughs> where my son is sleeping right now. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, John, real quickly, I yes. you did make a good point that, uh, of course, affirms what we do as arborists, which is you mentioned that with the weather system that you uh, had with hurricane that came through, or at least the, the the withering effects of it, that the trees on at the Smith College campus that had received some uh, structural pruning seemed to fare better, uh, with the exception of that linden. So. All this points to selective lateral reduction, name your percentage of uh, thinning cuts, deadwood removal, elevation. It does give those trees a mechanical advantage. It does, and it, it's really been impressed upon me lately how significant, uh, you can never quite quantify it because trees are too, uh, I don't want to say imperfectly shaped, but difficult to measure how forces will create torque within them. But the tiniest reduction to the outer limb, when you if, if you go outside and you hold, try to hold a 20-inch limb up in the air, you realize how much torque that creates at the base of it. It makes you realize how strong trees really are. Mm -hmm. But it, you also appreciate that, that a 10% reduction at the end of a 30-foot lever arm, the decreased wind load that that takes and yeah. a decreased leverage just because you turned 30 feet into 25 feet is amplified so much because of that mechanical advantage that the leverage has and you really can reduce the chance of tree failure so greatly and it also underscores the value of sort of managing your interior growth having that limb to cut back to i think we're well past the days of cleaning out the interior for the sake of aesthetics you know the messy tree <laughs> let those trees be Guilty. messy maybe curate <laughs> i actually i my our interns i always i try to save as many sort of like uh questions that i think i've given them enough information about i call it this chocolate bar challenge question for my interns and uh, we have these two pin oaks that are probably 120 years old, maybe four, three to four foot caliper, just monster pin oaks. And they're about the same canopy size, about 80 feet tall, about the same spread. And I tell them to, to look at these two trees. I said, one of these trees I'm really optimistic about and the other one I'm really concerned about. And what I'm trying to get them to key in on is one of them has zero interior growth. 
And one yeah. of them is just flush with interior growth. And I say like, that growth is a stress response, but it is a sign of vitality. Yeah. The other tree is yeah. experiencing the same stress. It's just not doing anything about it. It's failing. Right. Yeah. But there's also space for the kinetic energy to go too. That's yes. one of the things that's so important. And most people think, oh, you know, the cleaner the tree, the tree is on the inside, you know, the better it is. But the more places that it, kinetic energy has to go, yeah. the less chance that you have of a failure. Correct. And, well said, yeah. And and that is a key when you're looking at a tree. And of course, there's things you're going to clear out, maybe crisscrossing branches and maybe broken or snapped branches or maybe something that had snapped earlier and it needs to be clear, you know, cut clean. But for the most part, no, you don't need to clean everything out of the inside of a tree because of that. And that I think what John is referencing is the early days of our boriculture, especially on the estates of the newly minted wealthy turn of the century, is stripping everything out for that overly groomed look on your elms. I think I uh, remember from an old edition of P.P. Perone, uh, which you can pick up for cheap on eBay, but they actually used to have these tools so that not only were you stripping the interior growth out, but you would slow the slough off any uh, bark so that you it, not only would it be denuded of interior growth, but it would be this hyper smooth tree trunks all the way around. So just controlling every aspect of growth on that poor tree. It sounds tree. like a shaved face. That's what yeah. it sounds like. Yes, thank you. <laughs> And, and, you know, you know, the, that's really funny because I remember learning that, you know, flush cuts were great. But, you know, over time, we've learned that, you know, the branch collar is where you cut, not flush up against the trunk of the tree because it can't heal. Um, all of that, all of that needs to be taken into consideration. And, of course, that's why education is so important when we belong to a profession where it's it's a living profession and we have to keep learning about plant diseases and we have to learn what's appropriate for the plant itself as opposed to you know doing one size fits all kind of pruning or observation or what have you yeah it, our boriculture is evolving i mean that's the beauty of our work between the science and the craft and takes me back to my premise that i think our boriculture is about to change in light of the climate crisis. It just doesn't know it yet. Yeah, speaking of what, I'll, I'll uh, let the, the listeners uh, know if, if they don't already. Um, you mentioned Ed Gilman earlier, and he, he's, he's kind of the regarded as, as, as one of the, the premier educators in, edu in uh, arboriculture, and especially as it pertains to training young trees. If you Google Ed Gilman arboriculture class, you can get video of all his arboriculture lectures from the University of Florida. Uh, go Gators, got to say that for my, my parents. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, uh, and um, his information is very accessible to an honor. If you're, if you're not an arborist, uh, it, it's very accessible to, to anyone. But uh, younger trees, I've learned to be more aggressive. One nice thing about working at a, at a botanic garden is you get to see the mistakes you made 20 years ago. And I've learned to be more aggressive with young trees once they're established and they can tolerate a heavy pruning load to not be afraid to do that, to really establish the 
the basic structure of the tree aggressively because all trees are forest trees. So when they're growing in full sun, they're responding to a, to something that they're not they haven't been genetically selected for that environment, and they'll grow to their own detriment with with too many leaders, bad attachment angles, and so on, and managing right. that's so critical to to tree life. That's exactly right. And you know, it reminds me of you know when when I'm teaching a boar culture at Longwood, uh, you know, I talk to the students and you say you don't treat an old veteran tree like you do a young tree. Just think about your grandmother. <laughs> you, yeah. you know, you're you're not you're going to treat her more gentle and with kid gloves as opposed to the little kid who's going to be running around your feet and and knocking you over and all that kind of stuff. You, yeah. you just want to think about it that way. You know, trees are living things just like people, and we need to observe and maintain them in a way that um, is respectful to them especially older trees, especially veteran trees. I'll, I'll throw another website that the, I think Europe's a little bit ahead of us with that thinking that you're talking about, uh, Eva. And uh, in England, uh, if you Google ancient and veteran trees yes. UK, there's a fantastic website at um, a, a great organization that is aimed at raising awareness for and preservation of ancient and veteran trees to give them the reverence they deserve and to apply the latest arboriculture thinking towards them, respecting what they look like when they get old. If only we could do that as we, I, 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 there's nothing, I, you asked me about my favorite tree uh, in the last podcast, and it's this one that shows every bit of its history, of its tangle with, with, with the environment and, and, and time, and every scar and, and um, so that history is on display there and it's there's there's nothing more beautiful and managing trees as they they grow older and even as they decline you know they in in the woods they can they can senesce and still regrow and in the two as we manage that interior growth I, i've heard one read one article that that talked about thinking them of them more like shrubs as they grow older which is not very intuitive but it's that working a little bit more outside not making these big cuts and just sort of trying to think about regenerative regenerative growth and that was a new way of thinking for me you're right about that i mean you know when i lived in england they we had um we would go on these hikes and there were some trees that were so old that they they must have had i don't know how many different plants growing on their surface you know they were moss covered in the crotches there were there were um plants growing ferns and and mosses and lichen and tiny little plants you know small little trees growing off the branches of the big trees and you just can't help but wonder that you know this is a this is a living ecosystem also so that's something that we need to take into consideration as well. It's not just the tree itself, but it's everything that lives and survives on it. John, are you doing any planting this fall? We aren't. Certain elements of our uh, operations have been affected by COVID. And so we, we've tapped the brakes since March. Where the planting has occurred and something we're really excited about is the library project. I think I mentioned that last time in yeah. terms of preserving, treating an old elm that, that whose uh, whose roots were affected uh, by some 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 new pathwork uh, around the front. But uh, we are excited about the landscape. It's at that point where I'm 
have this competing yin-yang of excitement about the beauty that I'm seeing develop, but also, as you know, the end of a construction process uh, is when everything goes to hell and, and uh, you know, everybody's scrambling to meet a deadline and the fences that were there get taken down because they think they're done there, but then somebody yeah. needs a place to park a truck or, or something or, or, or put down some materials. And uh, so we're at that sort of exciting and anxious stage and there's quite a few trees going in there um the building is is gorgeous the the uh philosophy behind the landscape i think is is smith's future the the ecologically supportive and, and responsible theme that that we've embraced with with the planting plan is what we want our identity to be going forward and there's um i don't have the exact tree count in my head but it'll, it'll be several several dozen trees a lot of it's been sourced from native plant trust nurseries, so there's locally adapted genotypes that are are going to be on campus and reflecting the the genetic diversity of our native trees. Our time is running thin yeah. here. Uh, we are so thrilled that you were able to uh, come onto our show again. Um, we've really been blessed with having you here and uh, talking to our guests about trees at Smith College. Is there any parting words that you want to give us or anything else that you want to share with us before we go? You know, it's funny. It, it, we just ended on the note of, uh, of uh, curation. We, we, should, we should reconnect sometime and talk about that uh, exciting pivot point we're at. I'm glad we got the chance to talk. It's, it's, it's an interesting subject. I don't know if it's as interesting to, to the non-arboriculture crowd as it is to me the whole the whole concept of, of risk assessment um and and getting it right and and i really feel this deep obligation to geek out on this because i feel like when we do um, we'll have better systems to protect both trees and people well that's a great way to close because hal and i love to geek out <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we can't tell if we're geeks or nerds yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we need consistent language. You know, ISA, we need to be able to figure it out, whether we're geeks or nerds. Exactly. But yes, we'll revisit the curation. I, I think that would be a great topic. Great topic. Thanks again, John. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thank you.